Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Clear as Mud, where we talk to game developers from all walks of life about their personal and professional journeys. I'm your host, Graham Waltrip. As always, our show is presented by Mudstack, the only asset management and collaboration platform custom-built for game studios and digital artists. For more information, head over to mudstack.com. On today's show, we're talking to Tremel Isaac, an industry veteran with nearly 30 years in the business. Tremel takes us on a wild ride into the history of the industry with stories about working on the first two Fallout games and how many of the characters that remain ever-present in the franchise are his original creations. Tremel also served as art director on the infamous Duke Nukem Forever and takes us behind the curtain at the decade-plus development cycle of the game and discusses his work as art director on the Planetside franchise. Before we begin, we had a couple of technical sound issues with this episode. It's not anything earth-shattering or it's going to ruin your listening experience, but there are a couple of dips in audio quality. We spent a lot of time trying to fix it. We'll do better next time. We apologize for any inconvenience this may cause, but this is the joy of uh, doing a podcast in the remote world. So uh, please enjoy this interview with Tramel, and I'll see you after the show. So Tramel, 30 years... At least 30 years, right? It's over 30 years. Real close, real close. Real close. Almost 30 years in the industry. Looking back at everything to where you are now, what's kind of like the biggest leap forward? I mean, maybe not just in terms of technological advancement, but just the way developers work with each other. Um, well, it's got to be, you know, just the whole working from home situation. This is, uh, I mean, it's obviously more recent, but, you know, being able to try to navigate that environment has been challenging for a lot of people, you know, especially larger companies. I think people are still grappling with the idea that, you know, someday is going to get back to what we call normal. I'm I'm extremely doubtful that that'll ever happen. So uh, we'll see. But but yeah, I think that's been the biggest change, like being able to, you know, try to keep teams together, keep people engaged. you know, it's, it's out there that, you know, people are quitting at an alarm and wait or rate. Um, and I think it's mainly because it's just kind of a lack of connection. One, one day you could be at another company and then you can turn around and be at a different company the next day without lifting a finger. Um, and, you know, uh, truth be told, it's been extremely advantageous for people to quit and go to another job and get, you know, an extra 20 to 30 grand um, right off the bat. So, um, the competition is real stiff. So I think over the last three, four years, it's been extremely challenging. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's like I've been working pretty much since the pandemic got laid off initially. But um, when I did start working again, it's just been full, fully remote since then. And it's such like a stark contrast. I mean, I'm much more of a not as big a fan of working from home. I mean, I think it has its benefits, of course. Um, nothing like, you know, just rolling out of bed and going to the computer without having to deal with traffic and things like that, but just not being in the same place as people definitely wore on me over the years. And I'm sure, you know, for you having done business, as long as you've done it in person, I mean, that'd be a big adjustment. Yeah. It's been, it's been kind of rough. I like myself, like yourself, I am not a fan of working from home at all. Not only that, it's just too easy to kind of get distracted for me. I need, I need spaces to, to mean something. When I was working at Ilphonic, they shut down, you know, everything, but I was the only one still going into the office. I was in the office, you know, 7,000 square foot office by myself for two years. And, you know, my wife would be like, it, you know, don't you feel weird about being, I'm like, nope. It, mean, it meant something to me, like that space, like you keep those spaces sacred. You know, this is this how it works for me anyway. You know, prior to when I tried to, I tried to make it work at home early uh, in the process and it just didn't, it it felt weird because I was always looking at the clock and trying to figure out like, oh, is it time to quit? And I couldn't stand being in that room anymore. And the other the other byproduct was that is I realized that because I didn't want to go into that room, I didn't do any work after like I normally did. And you know, people listening to it maybe seem you know seem like it's a little weird to be even uh, thinking that working after work is a, is a big deal, but that's how you keep sharp. That's how you stay sharp. That's how you stay in this industry for almost 30 years is to continue to work your skills, to hone your skills. And the only time I had to do that was after work. 
you know, you get a, you get going with a routine with with pretty much everything in life, and for to have that just totally taken away, it's like I mean, places have a routine about them too. Like usually when I'm I'm at home, I don't expect to be doing the things I'm doing uh, at work. So yeah, it is it is just a weird thing for sure. But um, rewinding the clock a little bit. Take me back to when you first started to get interested in, in art. How did that come about? I was like four years old. I used to, you know, doodle and scribble. And probably drawings back then was probably trash. <laughs> My mom was very encouraging about, you know, just me, you know, doodling and, and drawing stuff. Like pretty much my whole family was. Um, even though like, you know, looking back on it, like what I was doing was, you know, like I said, it was probably garbage, but the fact that people were excited about me doing it, you know, drawing things and, you know, got me into it. And I just continued to do it, you know, all the way up until I graduated, you know, from art school. But yeah, I started off, you know, just, you know, drawing stuff and reading a bunch of Marvel comics and things like that. And that led me to, you know, kind of get to the point where I started like painting and, um, doing all kinds of different pottery and, you know, oil painting, watercolors, gouache, you know, you name it, pretty much doing it all. Went to the school after high school to uh, learn how to animate. Any sort of formative, uh, formative comics or artists that really inspired you? Oh yeah, plenty of them. You know, Jim Lee, Walt Simonson, uh, Mac Mignola, you know, Silvestri, like all the greats every Saturday, you know, all day looking at Thor and, and Iron Man and Spider-Man and, you know, the Hulk. And yeah. Just all the time, just, you know, looking at comics, collecting comics and, you know, just admiring the work that they did. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was a, that was a hell of a run back then for sure. Did you ever feel like when you were, you know, you continue to, to expand your artistic palette, definitely, you know, getting into pottery and things like that beyond, um, drawing, getting watercolors and things like that. Did you ever feel like you hit a wall at some point before you um, decided to like, you know, really go study animation and things like that? Or was this like 100% you wanted to just do something art related? No, it wasn't really just a, a wall, um, you know, because you know, by far I'm not, I don't even call myself a, a, a master at any of those things. It's just, you know, I was just interested in, in different stuff. I wanted to learn as much as I possibly could about anything art related. And yeah, it's like once I got, once I got to like my senior year in high school, I started taking uh, computer courses in, in college. So it was, you know, do I pr pretty much did all the art classes that they had in high school. And it wasn't anything else. So I just started taking college courses and that was just like, just to get something different. So one was like an airbrush class and another one was like a a PC class. And even in the PC class, that wasn't anything new to me because I had already started dabbling on, uh, you know, with digital art on the Commodore 64. Was your family still supportive of you continuing your pursuit of, of an artistic career? Yeah. I mean, it, it never stopped. Like the only kind of pushback I got from my mom was when I graduated high school and she was like, you need to go to a four-year college. And, you know, I wasn't a great student at school, period. I mean, let's, let's just get that out there. And I hated high school and I just wanted to get out and do my own thing. When I went to art school, you know, my mom was like, oh, uh, you know, she was really kind of, you know, I think she was upset that I did that instead of going to a four-year college like my brother did. And um, for me, I would much rather go somewhere where I was 100% sure that I wanted to go. Uh, versus just going somewhere just because she said so. Yeah, I think it's interesting with with a lot of kids because I, I was kind of the same way. I went to I went to film school right out of high school, and uh, my my dad was very much on the side of you should go to a four year school, and then if you still want to do film, you can still take film as a minor and then go to film school afterwards when you have like some more worldly experience. It was like no, I gotta I gotta do this kind of thing. Like sometimes when you just have that that passion. You just know that's what you got to do. That's what you have to pursue. Like if you don't do it, it's going to escape you somehow. I mean, it's the time. It's you know, time is waste for nobody, right? Right. You know, so life is you know hard enough without having you know a whole pile of regrets. Okay, so where where'd you go to school? 
the Joe Kubert School was actually uh, started as a comic book school. Oh, cool. And, um, you know, a lot of uh, great, you know, artists would teach there or visit there and, you know, do sessions and things like that. Um, great connections between uh, Marvel and DC. And a bunch of the, the people that I graduated with ended up going into comics, but I actually went there for animation. Um, but like the first two years were more graphic and uh, sequential art, you know, focus. Um, so yeah, I, I went to school with, you know, people who worked on Aquaman and, uh, you know, Sandman series, you know, X-Men, you know, Batman, you know, the whole shebang. So, you know, Punisher, uh, you know, a couple of friends who were, you know, were world renowned in, in that field, which is great because, you know, I get to learn from them and got to, you know, hang out and see their process. And, you know, it was just a lot of late nights and a lot of tomfoolery going on up in there. It was a good experience mainly because it was, it allowed me to get out of, uh, to get out of St. Louis and be able to see what the rest of, you know, some of the, what the rest of the world had to offer because we had students from all over the world, you know, people from London and France and, you know, Canada and, you know, Mexico. I got to meet these people where I would have never had the opportunity when I was, you know, living in the Midwest. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things I really enjoyed about my, my time at, at art school as well was just, you you sort of get into this uh, narrow bubble a little bit in terms of your own artistic sensibilities and what you think is is great and uh, the things that influence you that you're exposed to, but then you meet all these other people with different worldviews, particularly what you're talking about, you know, internet people from different countries, not just from different places, but different countries. I mean, that the bonds you form um, in places like that, I mean, they stick with you and they impact you in a, a number of different ways. Um, so yeah, I can't imagine, especially going to the, the, the school that you're talking about with all these, these renowned artists went on to all these great things. I mean, that, that must've been a lot of fun and just a, and a learning experience in and of itself beyond just the curriculum. Yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, these were, you know, when I, when I'm in my, my high school, I'm like one of the, I would say probably one of the top artists at the high school. And then I go to this school and I'm just trash. And, you know, just being around that kind of talent and, you know, steel sharp and steel. Um, you know, a lot of the, the guys that I went to school with are, you know, still to this day, you know, way better than I am or ever would uh, would have been if I would have focused on just comics. And so after school, what uh, what happened next? Uh, I actually ended up, you know, working on my portfolio for about a year. Video games was, wasn't really on my mind. You know, I want to, you know, do commercials and, and Saturday morning cartoons and maybe film and something like that. Um, so, you know, I was applying and, and, you know, reworking my reel and, uh, working on my portfolio for about a year and and uh, working two jobs, so it was like it was all it was all related. Like I worked at Blockbuster and I worked at an art store. So you know, at the art store, I was always buying paint, paper, and brushes. Anything I could get my hands on, have my paycheck would be gone by the time I walked out the door. You know, just you know, watching all the movies and stuff at Blockbuster, you get a couple free a week, but you know, always pick up something else just to you know, get more reference material in your mind. But, you know, I did that for about a year and then finally landed a job, just just happened to be the game industry. And, you know, I've been playing games since I was five, you know, since Pong came out and I've had every system since then, you know, so video games were just as, you know, just as necessary as, you know, comics and Saturday morning cartoons and, and movies to me. You know, when when I got the opportunity, I was like, hell yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that. Yeah. So who was that with? It was a small startup called Tachyon Studios. It was like a it started by some people who had worked on at Sierra Online because Sierra Online was, uh, you know, pretty big at the time. But Sierra Online was like north of Fresno in this town called Oakhurst in the middle of this valley that was like 15, 20 minutes south of Yosemite Park. Um, so it was, you know, definitely a culture shock for me going from St. Louis, moving to California, you know, living in this tiny town. I think it maybe had 13,000 people in it. Nothing in between, you know, nothing in between like Oakhurst and Fresno. So basically a bunch of smaller towns in between Fresno and, and Oakhurst. And then north of that was just, you know, Yosemite. So we're just in the middle of this valley. 
Um, but yeah, it was a great experience. I was there for about two, two and a half years until that company folded. What kind of stuff did you work on? Uh, it was just animation. So it was all 2D, hand animated, um, sprite based. So we worked on a game called Blood Magic. And it was a, a RTS um, made in the Dungeons and Dragons um, with the Dungeons and Dragons IP. Um, so it was similar to Warcraft. Uh, but, you know, had the IP attached to it. So what what did you learn there really about, I mean, not even like team building, but just working with a team? Was this the first time you really worked with a team on a on a project? Uh, yeah, I mean, you do that in school a little bit, but it's completely different. You know, it's like now you've got, you know, your ideas that you want to bring to the table, but the reality is you're just, you know, there to do your thing. For me, it's like work, you know, just being in there, which is like, I needed to be a sponge. I was working all the time, all the time. And, uh, you know, learning as, as much as I possibly could. Uh, and, you know, the game industry, this is before 3D. So it wasn't like, you know, I'm still just learning the ropes, just trying to get, you know, uh, a portfolio that looks decent. Between like the, the, the first year and the second year, 3D became, started to become a little bit more um, prevalent in the game industry. And I started learning that. And then from there, it was just kind of like every every year there was something new to learn. Is you know, everything was changing. So when 3D starts starts happening, what are like the first programs that start coming out where you can actually do 3D animation? Was that was that Maya or was there something else? No, uh, it was a my first program was 3D Studio. Um, you know, learn a model and animate inside of that. Uh, prior to that, it was all two, 2D programs like D-Paint, and um, there was another animation tool that we used as well. I forget the name of it right now, uh, but it was mainly D-Paint Animator, which was kind of like a, it was a two, 256 palleted animation tool, you know, so, you know, 256 palette, you only got 256 colors that you could work with. And I think maybe 14 of those you couldn't use at all because they were used for UI or something else. So it was very limited in its, um, you know, in its use. But I mean, it was a good time to kind of learn that stuff and, you know, being kind of like at the beginning of it all, really. You know, everything was kind of made in the same same way. Like even like I think that we were playing like Doom and Rise of the Triad at work. Um, and those are all palleted games. So it's just kind of the same same process. But even like the original Doom wasn't really 3D. It was kind of 3D-ish. Yeah. Sort of this hybrid thing. Yeah. So when uh, did you go to Interplay after the first spot? Yeah, I went to Interplay. I was actually um, contracted with them before I went there, like for real. And then when I got to Interplay, like prior to Interplay, I was actually doing all the death animations for the original, uh, for Fallout. Um, and this was before it was even called Fallout. It was, uh, it was a Steve Jackson game. I don't know if you're familiar with Steve Jackson, but um, he made this role-playing system and they were actually, it was an IP game, you know, based on his role-playing system. So at the time I was just working on that and doing all the death animations. So they would rent out the, the deaths, but all of like the little details were done by hand. So um, I would go in and put like bones and, you know, like blood trails and extra bits on the deaths to kind of like jazz them up, make them a lot more gory. Um, and I did that as a contractor prior to actually working at Interplay. So then when that company shut down, I ended up going to Interplay because I, you know, had a good rapport with the people down there. I think my first assignment officially at Interplay was to design uh, the Vault Boy. Oh, really? Yep. So did did you design the Vault the Vault Boy on your own, or did you work with anybody on that? Well, you know, we they had an an initial uh, idea of it and like a kind of almost like a napkin sketch of them. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like. The first version of Mickey Mouse, almost. Right. So, so it didn't look like what he looks like now. What he looks like now is based on my design. Wow. Leonard Boyarsky had the idea. He was like, "Oh, I wanted to kind of resemble the Monopoly guy," and Tim Kaine was, you know, driving some of the ideas behind it as well. And then they just gave me, you know, the parameters and what, you know, kind of like the personality of this this character that, you know, came up with him. 
How does that feel now, knowing that 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 design is still so relevant, and it really is like what you think? Of, like it's for me, that, that's like what I think of when I when I think of Fallout. So, uh, you know, everybody wants to do something to leave a mark on the world in some some way, right? You know, be it positive or negative. At least I've I've done something that can be recognized. You know, in a lot of different you know settings. So, yeah, I'm proud of that part. So, what, what's it like working at Interplay? How, how did that change in turn, like culturally from where you were before? Um, what was the dynamic like there? I had a lot of fun. <laughs> I had a lot of fun working at Interplay, and like it's such a great group of people. And you know, I worked my ass off. I worked really hard when I was there. And it wasn't like this is, you know, this goes beyond like even the conversation of, oh, you know, shouldn't be working that much, you know, that many hours. I didn't care because it was so much fun. Like I couldn't wait to get done with the the with one task and move on to the next one. And you know, I was just having a blast. So didn't matter. I was, I was easily working. 70 80 hours a week but you enjoyed it yeah i'm getting paid for this like that's how i felt but you know when this you look back on it you know ultimately you probably you know you know talk about hour for hour you probably make it about as much as the next person at mcdonald's but i don't think i have any really bad memories of interplay at all like it was always something something fun to do really tight-knit group it sounds like too yeah i mean it was i mean people was coming and going but still like you know the talent that was there was just immense i'm like in my third year so i'm trying to soak up as much as i possibly could so at this time i'm learning like three different uh three different programs you know three different 3d programs and you know working and i had like three computers in my in my office and a couch of course so i can you know take a nap wake up and go go back to it. And it was, you know, it's just nuts. It, plenty of times I spent the night up in there working on stuff, but, you know, Fergus and, you know, Darren Monahan and Brian Minzy and like all these guys, you know, used to have, you know, Tim Dolly, used to have big fun. We play games of Quake and just, you know, just had a blast. Yeah, there's not not much better than when you're you're working on something with a group of people and y'all just love each other and love hanging out and and doing the work and also having fun together. Sounds great. Did you work on the opening cinematic on on Fallout One? I did. That stuck with me for a while and and how well done it is. And so like a lot of people will talk about you know the the direction and and games you know around that time like Metal Gear Solid and things like that, but. And I'm a huge Metal Gear fan myself, but I mean that opening cinematic alone, um, of just the the propaganda on the TV and the pullout from that to the shot of the the nuclear wasteland while the TV is still playing. I mean, it's incredibly powerful. It sets the tone beautifully. Can you talk about how that uh, how that sequence came about? How it came about? I mean, I think it's mostly Leonard and uh, Leonard Boyarsky and, and Jason Anderson working through that. I'm not really sure how I weaseled my 2D uh, skills into that, <laughs> but I did uh, somehow. I think, you know, my portion of it was kind of a testament to what I, I had just, you know, what I had just done, you know, just graduated not too long after that, still kind of keeping my animation skills uh, sharp and then transition. It was like a transition because some of that stuff was actually 2D, 2D drawn over 3D, you know, and a combination and the Vault Boy was all, you know, 2D. Uh, it was a combination of the two, but it was, you know, kind of almost in a lot of ways rotoscoped over the top of 3D to make it feel like a cartoon. So for me, it was just like, oh man, I get to do, you know, I get to be a part of this because it was such a big deal. And it was something that they had already kind of established and you know, just being able to, you know, add any kind of influence to it was, you know, it's an honor. Yeah, I just, you know, I was just happy that I got to participate um, in any kind of way. Yeah, the the uh, the last shot, especially like when the camera finally stops, it reminds me of like the opening of uh, Godfather 1 kind of the whole I believe in America monologue and it slowly just pulls back. 
But when it stops, like the city, yeah, it kind of has this sort of almost like a matte painting kind of feel to it. Such a great image. Um, great shot. Great, great overall just opening to a game. Um, so then, then Fallout 2 comes like right on the heels of that, right? That's like nine months after Fallout 1. Right after Fallout was done, there's a little bit of downtime and where, where, you know, Tim and Leonard, you know, basically were trying to figure out like what the story was going to be for two. I had moved on to work on this game called Descent to Undermountain, which was a game that had languished in like, you know, production hell for a long time. If you look at the credits list, if you ever dare to to open it up, literally every artist in Black Isle at the time listed on that thing because at some point in time, they had rotated in and rotated back out. And um, I remember Fergus came to me and was like, you know, while we're waiting on Fallout 2 to get spun up, I want you to get this game out the door. And... I was like, all right, cool. Cause you know, challenge, whatever, challenge accepted. When Fergus asked me to do that, I was like, all right, cool. Didn't even really care what the team makeup was. It was like me and like three other people. It's like a producer and a, and a designer, maybe, and a couple of programmers. We just, I just did it. Figure out what's missing, fill in the blanks, do that work. I had to do, you know, a bunch of stuff. Like as, as bad of a game it was, as it was, and it was like, I think PC Gamer gave it the kind of listed it as, you know, back in the day as the, one of the worst games ever made. <laughs> Just hilarious. But as bad as it was, it was a great experience for me because I, it, that was the first time I actually got to see like all of the facets that, that re, are required to make a game and get it out the door. You're doing VFX and, you know, rigging and animating and texture work, character work, um, UI work, you know, doing like, you know, some paintings for, you know, like transition paintings, uh, you know, different renders and things like that. I think that that game, regardless of how bad it was, taught me a lot. I learned a lot on that game. Yeah, it sounds like it's a lot bigger than, than Fallout 1 for sure. Yeah, it was a much bigger role as far as like my participation in it, having to put it all together and make sure that it could get in the box. And, and of course, I mean, obviously it didn't do enough because it was trash. And you came in like the middle of development on that, right? It was the end. It was the end. So that, yeah, that's even tougher. So the, the I think the, the game had been left for dead. And it was like, we just need to get it out the door. Can you finish it up? I was like, all right, cool. Let's go. Let's go. And, um, yeah, you don't get opportunities like that. You probably never will because it's just not – the game industry is not – you know, games just aren't made like that anymore. And so then you go you go back to 2, Fallout 2, right, after that? Right after that, I got done with that. They were ready with Fallout 2 and took, a, took on a, a lead role in Fallout 2. Um, was able to do a little bit of everything on that one as well. Worked on the, the intro again. Did some some character design, some some rendering, some you know animation, character um, creation. A lot of the you know a number of the the characters that are still being used today are mine that I created. Robo Brain, that's mine. Uh, Robo Dog Meat, uh, Frank Harrigan, uh, and a couple others that are in there. The geckos, all of the the different versions of the geckos, flaming gecko. You know, all of those are are my creations. So, yeah, it was fun. Like we had a really good time. Are you? Is your like confidence growing at this point now that you get like a lead role and you know you worked on the first Fallout, you knock out Fallout Two? Do you feel like all right now, like what's what's the next challenge? Cause it just feels like you know very driven, super high work ethic, passion for what you do. You learn how to do it, you knock it out. So now that you're getting to like lead roles, are you ready to just take on the world after that? I thought I was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And, you know, that kind of, that was the reason why I ended up leaving. I thought I was better than I was. In some regards, I probably was uh, due to, you know, expand myself. But it was, for me, I was chasing, I was chasing this dream of being an art director for, for no real reason. And I say no real reason because it was like when I got into the industry, I was like, I want to be an art director. Not knowing what the hell that meant. It took me from 
the time that I got into about seven years in to get an art director job. I wasn't fully prepared for doing that. And it was just like, it was just that that ego was driving me. When in reality, I had no idea what I was doing. And um, when I went from Fallout 2 to they was, you know, it was just like, oh, we just need some animations. You need you to animate and build some characters for Icewind Dale. I don't know. I, I kind of took it the wrong way. Like I took it like, oh, now I'm just animating again. And, you know, I look back on it and I know Fergus was probably like, this dude, I can't do nothing with this guy. I can't make him happy. It was time to go. Um, and because of my, you know, kind of blinders and stupidity, I kind of I messed up a, a opportunity that probably could have changed my life. So what, what was that? Um, so like when I was working on Icewind Dale, I had a, I don't think I've ever told this story in public. So you got this exclusive. Oh, wow. I'm excited to hear it. I was like, I was interviewing at different places. So I had these two trips planned. One was in Maryland and one was in Austin. And this company in between, like right before I was about to go on these, these interviews. Um, and this was back when you had to fly out, <laughs> fly to a location. Right. No zoom interviews. Yeah. Yeah. And talk to them in person and actually go through the, you know, go through the motions and all that stuff. And like, I had this narrow window in between. So the way that it, it would have worked out, I was like, fly out on Sunday, something like that. Interview on Monday, fly back to Orange County on on Tuesday. And then like on Thursday, I would fly to Austin and interview on Friday and then fly back that evening. So I had like this, you know, really narrow window and the company was like, Hey, you know, don't don't take a job until we get to talk to you. I was like, I can't promise you that. I made Vault Boy, damn it. I'm Vault Boy <laughs> creator. You can't tell me to wait. So they said, all right, well, we'll pay for your whole trip. Don't even use those other tickets. We'll pay for you to go to Maryland, come here, fly you to Texas, and then fly you back home. I was like, all right, cool. So did it. Um and again, like I was saying, like my my idea of what so-called success looked like was, oh, you need to be an art director. And the position that they were offering was just, you know, another animator. And in my mind, I was like, I don't even I don't even want to deal with that no more. I don't want to be that anymore. I want to be, you know, climbing the ladder and all this other jazz. When the reality is I wasn't really looking at it. I was looking at what I wanted as opposed to what I needed. I passed on them after, you know, I won't get into the, the, the details of that, but ended up passing on them. And that company was Epic Games. Oh, man. <laughs> but, you know, I got to, got to meet Cliff and, 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 um, and Tim back when they were just, you know, kids, man. Right. And, um, you know, just, it just wasn't what I was looking for. And had I just been a little bit more humble and just recognizing what I was good at, which at the time I was a pretty decent animator. I think animation was where I needed to be. And I could have, you know, I could have been retired like five, six times over by now. Did you learn anything from that in the, the sort of the, the after? Was there a time when you, you woke up like, I don't know, three, six months later and you're like, well, shit, I should have taken that or or anything like that. Or did you just keep marching forward? Oh, no. Yeah, it's, there's definitely um, a time soon after that, you know, I went to Texas um, where I was like, damn. Yeah. This is this was a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up being down there for maybe a year. And then that's when I went from there to Sony to work on the original plant side. So before we go, before we go into Planet Science, I definitely want to talk about that, particularly too. I think the the work on that's pretty amazing from that from you and that entire team. I, I gotta I gotta ask some Duke Nukem Forever questions. Okay, because that's such a <laughs> it's such a project that fascinated the industry and 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 gamers especially alike. I think in terms of the mystique surrounding it. Yeah. Right. So. Everybody knows who's probably listening to this. I went through extreme development hell, 
you were you were part of the 3D Realms team, and it had already been in active development for a minute, right? Uh, I think it might have been in development maybe ten years prior to me getting there. So when you get there, yeah, it started development I think in the '90s. When you get there, what's the what's the morale like on that team? I mean, I'm sure a lot of them had been working on it forever. I, I heard that plenty of people had left at that point just because like this was like the only 3D game that they had worked on. They had nothing for a portfolio. They had been in absolute development hell. So what are you walking into when you when you sign up with them? It was like 50-50 on the morale. Like some people was like, oh, you know, kind of is what it is and rolling with it. And then other people were just like pissed about being, you know, being kind of stuck in this environment. And, you know, so to rewind it a little bit, how I got introduced to to George, who was one of the co-owners of uh, of 3D Realms, George and Scott actually, was through Cliff Blazinski. After I interviewed with at, at Epic, me and him kept in, in touch. And, you know, he introduced me to George through this, you know, this is back when we were all kind of posting on forums and we, you know, interact and ask questions and do, you know, talk talk about the, the game industry on this forum. And, um, you know, so I got to talking to George and this was well before I even started, even thought about working there. This was like in, in 2000 somewhere. So I didn't actually start working with George until like 2006. So like five, six years prior to working on Duke. Um, I had been talking to George, you know, just shooting the shit, no big deal. And uh, I think I was down there for like a convention, anime convention down in, in yeah. Dallas or something. And I stopped by and George was like, oh, yeah, you should come check out the game. And I was like, yeah, I, I got to see that, <laughs> you know, because the spectacle of it all. I was like, this yeah. better be, you know, something. But so at the time, they had like all of these kind of parts and pieces um, but no like consolidated game, but like it was just like a bunch of really cool small vignettes. So like you play in pool and you know had these uh, a lot of physics uh, puzzles and this water physics thing that that was just ridiculous. They had a lot of really cool technical um, achievements in that, and I was like, man, that's pretty dope. You know, I think it might have been like shortly after that. I was like, all right, man, let's. Uh, I think his his art director at the time was like, I'm done with this. So, you know, we linked up and, you know, that's how it kind of ha- happened. And then when I got there, you know, there was still some people, you know, that were kind of upset with George because he was, they were blaming him for the delays and because it wasn't good enough. And I think a couple people quit. I ended up firing a dude and replacing him with people who, just wanted to get it done and wanted to do a really good job at it. And that that team, once we built that team, that was the team that ultimately shipped it when it was all said and done, uh, even after Gearbox took it. Gearbox took it um, maybe like two years after we had stopped working on it, but I would say probably a good 70% of the content that was in that, that build was stuff that we had did before. When I got there, the game was like 15, almost 20 hours long. And I think they cut it down to maybe 12. I don't know what they actually shipped because I never played the shipped product. I remember playing it and I didn't think it was as bad as everyone said it was. Oh, it was it probably was. It I mean, probably, it probably was. like <laughs> it wasn't great, but like people react were, were acting like it was like the worst game ever made. And I was like, I've, I've played much worse games. No, than this. because it was supposed it needed to be the greatest thing. Oh, of ever. course, it did because that it was, was like the biggest problem. Fifteen years in development, that was, but <laughs> yeah, that was the biggest problem that it couldn't it couldn't uh, exceed the hype. It would have to be a ten out of ten in order for it to to even matter. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I just knew because I've been in development that long. I was like, there's no way this is going to be like, maybe it's also just because I went into it with extremely low expectations. I think that was probably helpful um, in terms of my reception of it. But what have you learned at this point about setting up like how things should function within your team? Take me through like how you set up uh, an art team to be successful. Around this uh, period of time was more about like building a, a team you know, kind of building to fill the holes. So the first go round was me 
thinking I knew what I, I, I was doing, but didn't. And, you know, creating a team um, based on just my flawed logic. So that was a failure in my eyes. And the plan side one team, I directed that team like I was them. At that point in time, I was, you know, capable of doing everything on that project. And I did, you know, where it came from, you know, character modeling or, or setting up, uh, you know, doing technical art or doing, you know, rigging and, you know, animation or VFX, you know, I could do all of that stuff. And ultimately I ended up doing all of that once they, you know, scaled down the team that had the, the ability to do it all. And because of that, and because of the way that I worked, my drive, my expectations for them were the same as they were for me. And that, you know, only works with certain person personality types. If people are the same as you, then yeah, it would work. But for people who work differently, which are probably a lot of people. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask how that translated. I ended up hurting some feelings for sure. Um, but the one thing for sure out of that, I would say a good 80% of the people that I I work with on that art team and even on the programming team. Uh, I, I believe have a good amount of respect for me because we're still friends to this day. And, you know, we can, you know, have a, a conversation about the so-called good old days at any point in time. So I don't think people, I was that hard on folks, but I do know that, you know, at that point in time, my management style was, you know, still development and developing. And I was, you know, wasn't, wasn't for everybody. And, you know, fresh off of that, going into Neverwinter Nights, um, I think it was more the same in a lot of ways. But, you know, when I went to Obsidian, you know, thinking that it was, it would be like old times, like, you know, so most of these, you know, most of the people that worked there at the time were all from Interplay. You know, saying you can never go back home it's true. You never go back home. And it felt weird because now they were in everybody that I knew and worked with were in, you know, different positions and, you know, had different responsibilities. And I couldn't understand that, um, why it felt so cold at the time. And even, even when I had interviewed, like a, a recurring theme throughout my, my career has always been to come in and fix stuff. So I remember interviewing for Neverwinter Nights prior to them hiring the person that they hired. Person that they hired didn't work out. They had a bunch of problems with him. I talked to Fergus again. He was like, hey, man, we need your help. I was like, all right, cool. You know, when Fergus calls, you you go, right? And because it's the same thing, like with with uh, with uh, the Mountain. Fergus was like, man, I need you to finish this thing. I was like, all right, man, I got you. But my conversation with him on the phone at the time when we were discussing that was like, you know how I work and are you cool with that? And he was like, yeah, I'm good. So at the time, you know, it was kind of like balls to the wall. Let's do it. We get it. We got to get this thing shipped. So anything that transpired after that was just kind of in that mentality. But for the people that it did work for, I ended up hiring those people on Duke Nukem Forever. Because the game had already been in development so long, did you go into it kind of like thinking about changing anything in terms of the aesthetic or was it just kind of like we need to just finish this sort of deal? No, it was a lot of stuff that had to be redone. Like all the characters <laughs> got redone. Some environments got, you know, ju juiced up a little bit. Um, they ended up hiring this guy who was not from the, the game industry at all. He was from, he had an architecture background um, and he helped us a lot with just getting you know buildings and stuff like that and spaces to feel real um as opposed to gaming so he was a, a huge help and then you know mark skelton who's you know had worked at blizzard for a while you know really talented character artists came in and helped you know take all the, the the creatures and stuff and put them on just take them to the next level and uh, Randy Forsythe, he was an amazing character artist that I had hired when I was at, um, right out of school when I was working at on Neverwinter Nights. Um, he came through and, you know, ended up joining the team 
as well. And, you know, Ben Olf, who, you know, currently now works at uh, Epic, he was, you know, a really big help. But we had, we ended up hiring a bunch of people who were just extremely talented. And then there was a bunch of people who was who were there that hadn't, you know, hadn't really blossomed or hadn't had the ability to shine. And, you know, Chris Smith, who's, I think, working at CIG right now, he was one of those people. He was just, you know, super talented modeler. Uh, Chris Simone, again, like it's a bunch of people that were just like extremely talented. You worked on it for what, a couple of years? From 2006 to 2009. Okay. And so at that point, that's when 3D Realms goes under, right? They shut it down. Yeah, shut it down. Because then like they were, they acquired by Take-Two or Take-Two was putting pressure on them to like finish the game. I think uh, later after they shut down, um, Gearbox bought bought 3D Realms. Uh, or they bought, I think they bought just Duke Nukem. I'm not really sure what the, the details are for that. Yeah, Take-Two was always, you know, trying to pressure uh, George and Scott to hurry up because they were all, they were funding it themselves and they had plenty of dough. You know, they was always telling Take-Two to back off. Right. That's one of the most fascinating part about that story to me is that they were funding it themselves for that long, for like 14, 12 years of development, whatever it was, like unreal. Which, I mean, I think all of this could have been avoided. Like a lot of this stuff could have been avoided uh, the way it ended up. Had uh, George believed in the team enough to let us know what the situation was. So we didn't know we was running out of dough. I mean, we didn't know until it was too late. It was mad late. But the game was in a, in a good spot at the time where if we had known, which they, I'm sure they knew, we had, had known like seven, eight months before, mm-hmm. we probably would have got the game out. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but the, the, the part of the team actually stayed on after 3D Realm shut down to try to finish the game by themselves without pay because they believed in it that much. And if I think one of the things that, uh, that George was concerned about is like, if I tell them, then everybody's just going to quit. The reality right. of it was that nobody probably would have quit. Everybody would have just doubled down and got it done and, and probably would have shipped the game. And we probably have a you know different story for today, but he just didn't have that for whatever reason, he just didn't trust that the team would rally in that way, but they did. And, you know, by the time Gearbox got it, I believe uh, that group had been working on it maybe eight, nine months by themselves. Man, that is a uh, true belief in, in a project to continue that. It's admirable. All right. So that's, <laughs> that's Duke Nukem, man. What a story. So, uh, yeah, I definitely want to talk about Planet Side 2. That's a that's a hell of a shooter, I gotta say, in terms of what you guys accomplished. It'll yeah. be ten years in November. Yeah, still going strong. Um, they just released a, a patch, underwater patch, which was a major update for them uh, a couple months ago. How how long was development on on that one? That was eighteen months from scratch. No engine, no nothing. Right, because the first one came out like a decade before that, or something, right? Yeah, it came out 2003, something like that. 2003, yeah. So, yeah, obviously you got to have a new engine at that point. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so at this point, right, when you when you come on board, what what changes in terms of your, your art direction management style in terms of what you're doing? Are you still getting your hands dirty with everybody or are you... Because we were moving at such a pace that was, you know, probably wasn't you know, necessary or needed, but, you know, in order to get something out in 18 months without any idea whether or not this thing is going to see the light of day, yeah, you kind of move with some some kind of level of importance. So, yeah, I was getting my hands dirty. I was making stuff and, you know, you know, building things and making textures and doing all kind of stuff in that engine. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's really the only way to go to when you get when you're asking people to do difficult things it's hard to have 
to be sitting on the sideline while they do those difficult things, you know, because it, it, I wouldn't tell nobody to do anything that I wouldn't be willing to do. Yeah. And I think that's got to rally them to want to work harder. Right. You know, hopefully they say, you know, let me go, you know, pitch in. But yeah, I just never wanted to, I never want to be that guy that's just like, Oh, go do this thing. And I'm going to go sit here and, and rest. You know, it's always been, let's go, let's go do it. And I think by this time, management wise, um, it was less about what I wanted them to do, you know, or less about what I expected them to do based on my performance. You know, it was a lot more fun the second time around, actually, just just to, the interaction with the with the players, interaction with the community. You know, just kind of like when this is Twitch is just brand new and just kind of dealing with streaming and you know, reaching out and touching, you know, different types of people in communities and stuff like that and having conversations with them. It was a different, it was a different way of managing when it's all, when it was all said and done, like I think Plant Side 2 was probably the most relaxed and natural that I've ever felt in, in that role. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm curious, take me through like, if you're, if you're setting up like assets, like props, environment art to be done, what's what's the order of the day when when you're when you're figuring out all the things you, your team needs to make? How does that how do you set it all up? I'm just interested in your your process of all that. I mean, wh- from whatever title you want to think of, I'm just I really just want to know how you how how the sausage is made. I mean, it all starts with, you know, concepts prior to that is all about the you know design what the expectations are, are for the any particular level. So like with, with Plant Side 2, it was more about, um, you know, designing a whole map and figuring out what that map looked like across, you know, 8K, 8 kilometers by 8 kilometers. Because you're dealing with thousands of players, right? Yeah, we're dealing with thousands yeah. of players. And then, of course, you got to, you know, each map has to feel a certain way. So you want it to have a different feel when you're playing on it. So it's just not all desert or all just, you know, rock or all green grass. So it's more about like figuring out, okay, you know, if design saying, okay, this is an ice map. Okay, what what on this map can we do to make it interesting visually uh, and still keep that same flavor of what it needs to be? And that's where the concepts and stuff come in. Start concepting it out. And then you start building based on design elements because uh, even though that you know the map is massive, you still have to be concerned about like sight lines and blockers and things like that. And that's when design is coming in and you know creating uh, pathways and you know choke points and things like that, trying to uh, trying to corral people into different scenarios or force mm-hmm. them into different conflicts. Um, and even then, like a lot of stuff falls, falls by the wayside when you, when you, uh, when you actually get real people on the map and then you see where they actually go, then we got to, you know, kind of change things up, but it all starts with, you know, kind of a blockout mesh. And then we, we art from there. Um, you know, with those maps, we had like a limited amount of, uh, textures that we could use specifically for the, the, the map itself. The buildings were already kind of had their own had their own texture footprint that they they occupied. So, you know, a lot of things we didn't really have to worry about when it came to that. But it was more about like making sure that uh, the flora on 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 those maps, you know, you know, complemented it or you know actually added some more flavor to what we were doing. Um, you know, maps, so swamp maps, and things like that, and water, and having like, you know, um, sight lines that are, that make great screenshots, extremely important um, for marketing, things like that. So yeah, it was always just kind of at the, you know, front of my mind. It's like, okay, what can we put in this map that's going to, that's going to sell it? So yeah, it was just, it all starts kind of like at the very beginning where you're like, here's the concept of the thing, let's, let's draw it out. And then you start, you know, building your texture sets and start laying it out. What about like for for animation wise? Does it follow for for you a, a pretty similar similar pattern in terms of concepts, mesh, rig, etc.? Is there 
more involvement there with um, creative directors, things like that? How, how does that play out? Yeah, animation is a little different because it, it kind of touches all the groups. So like how you build a character needs to be approved by animation. Because if it doesn't, you know, if it's not rigged properly and doesn't fold, you know, things don't bend right, then it's just not going to look right. So just, you know, being in con constant contact with the uh, with animators and the riggers to make sure that they we're building the stuff the right way, you know, starting off with block meshes and things like that and getting kind of a good idea of what what's supposed to, you know, to be flexible, what's not supposed to be flexible, you know, getting all the rules set uh, prior and then, you know, going off on it and actually build, building it for real. I think animation is is kind of one of those uh, one of those groups that kind of live in between everything because they have to touch a lot of things, you know, when it comes to weapons or characters or vehicles. Yeah, you know, they're involved in, in pretty much every step of the way. So, like, you know, if you're, you're you can be a you know environment artist and you never really have to deal with anybody, right? You're just making rocks mm -hmm. or making structure pieces or you know making textures all day long and people take those textures and do things with them. But animation is kind of, they have to be involved in order for anything to look right on screen. So where, tell me what you think about um, in terms of where, where the industry is headed in terms of uh, AI, in terms of, in terms of the way that assets are generated textures. Um, seems like we're entering kind of a, strange new world where it's less manual and more more automated in almost everything. Yeah, I think I think there's a it's gonna be I would say probably in the next three three years. We're gonna probably do away with the the fact that we have to do mundane stuff. And I think artists on teams will be focused more on uh creative endeavors than they would be like, oh, I need you to make a desk. And it's like, well, you know, at the present time, you can kind of go get any desk off the marketplace or get one off a turbo squid or whatever. Like you can find these things, these more mundane, more day-to-day uh, -day type stuff, uh, less fantastic stuff, you know, anywhere, right? So I think, you know, right now they've got, you know, demonstrations of um, AI building 3D meshes. I think what's going to happen is we'll have people that just create prompts all day. So I need a Victorian chair with uh, red velvet and uh, gold filigree. You type in those prompts and then it, it generates a mesh for you, you know, and the unwrap. So like all of the things that people hate doing, like unwrapping. and Right. With the UVs. Yeah. And look at this chair I made in my portfolio. Nobody cares about the damn yeah. chair in your portfolio. <laughs> like all that stuff is going to be, I think is going to be done by AI, which it should be because, you know, you can spend your time working on set pieces that actually change the the fabric of the game. They, Like I said, they're already doing that now in, you know, kind of experimental phases. I think in the next three years, it'll be more like mid journey is now or Dolly is now where you can just type in a prompt and it'll build you whatever thing that you want. Do you worry about like something like that kind of like way in the future, um, taken away from even doing like character models and, and things like that? Do I worry about it? No, these technologies will exist or coexist with game development. Just it'll change how you work. I think it's the more um, creative things that people are afraid of. Yeah, that's the thing I'm kind of wondering about because like all these incredible character models that people are able to come up with. Um, yeah, you know, I would just hate if like the human element was lost out. Like a bed, a desk, a chair, so be it. But something that really you know pulls at the soul would be something I would I would be afraid to lose with something like that. Um, I think that's probably coming too. So I'd probably give it five to seven years before they're generating characters based on just straight concepts. I don't think there'll ever be a make game button. Still got to make the game. I think just the makeup of the team will, you know, go from, you know, maybe, you know, from 80 to 90 people down to maybe 50 people. 
Well, it's a crazy time we're living in. And Tramel, I think that's uh, that's going to wrap us up. But thank you so much for stopping by and talking with us. This was fantastic hearing about your journey and all these incredible titles you worked on. And uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. No, man, appreciate it. Um, thanks for, you know, choosing me to do this. You know, hopefully somebody Absolutely. got something uh, educational out of uh, out of this whole conversation for sure. All right, that's going to wrap up our show. We want to thank Tramel again for being our guest this week. To find out more about Mudstack, head over to mudstack.com where you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and join our Discord. Thank you as always for listening, and we'll see you next time on Clear as Mud. Thank you.